0: I'm Neil. I'm an alcoholic. I I said that already. And uh, it's good to be in this meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I want to thank all of you for being here. I want to thank the secretary, substitute secretary, Anna, for inviting me. The coffee guy and the cookie guy and the cake gal. Thanks a lot for setting up the chairs. It's good to be in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous on uh, January 2nd. The day after amateur night. (laughs) uh, you know when i was out there drinking and using new year's eve was always a very important night i always had to be at the party i always had to be at the most fabulous party where is all the in people where is everybody you know i'm from new york where is everybody partying where's the fun time the stress of getting to the fun party on new year's Eve. the fear of the fomo the fear of missing out So a group of my friends and I decided to check out that. We were no longer gonna do that because it was just too, you know, just killed us. So we decided to go down to Chinatown every New Year's and we'd go to a Chinese restaurant in Chinatown and we'd order a drink from the menu, all those umbrella drinks, right? So whatever was on on the menu, we would always order Order what it was, so it'd be like a Mai Tai, a Singapore sling, a navy grog, something that came in like a bowl with two straws. We just drink those, you know, on New Year's, and inevitably somebody got so twisted and so drunk that they would like barfing or anything. And uh, they'd be like, Oh, I love you, man, I love you. The old, I love you, man, amateur stuff, total (laughs) amateur
1: stuff.
0: So People would always ask me, do you go out on New Year's now? And I'm like, I don't go out on New Year's at all now. I take it easy. It's very slow. And I want to thank Matt. He did a great job. Ten-minute speaker. told my story. The last couple of weeks, I've been in the dumps too. I always get a little sad around New Year's. Always a little sad around Christmas. Uh, I'm Jewish. Everybody's celebrating Christmas. (laughs) I'm like, what about me? My people had nothing to do with it. Got out of it. Carpentry business and AD. <laughs> I
1: don't
0: do any of that stuff and uh so I'm a real alcoholic
1: uh,
0: I'm an alcoholic who loves to drink I love drinking I love the glassware i love the booze i love the smell i love the urinal smell I love the <laughs> cigarette smell I love the bar
1: I love drinking and uh
0: I even love the ice. I love it. You know what I always say to this day,
1: you
0: can ask too. I always say ice makes or breaks a party. Think about it. Ice makes or breaks a party. I could be at any party. If there's no ice, I'm leaving. It's just the way I am. Anyway, so I'm a real alcoholic. And for me, alcohol was the key to a lock that I didn't even know I had. When I drank, I... I just came alive. Alcohol solved all my problems. And at age 13, when I got drunk at that bar mitzvah on Manischewitz, (laughs) I had found the answer. I didn't know what the problem was, but I had found the answer. And there was a girl when I got sober who used to say, alcohol made me wittier, prettier, and tittier. And that's my story. I was not an alcoholic when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. I caught alcoholism in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. When I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was just a thirsty girl. (laughs) But I would sit in the meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous and I'd hear you share and I'd crack up and uh, I started to relate. And if you're laughing in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and you're new, You're sunk because that means you're identifying. You know, you're identifying with what happened and how you feel and how I feel. Now, my story is not gnarly. I do not have a gnarly story. In fact, the word gnarly never really entered my vocabulary until I moved out here. (laughs) I'm from Brooklyn, we don't do gnarly things. So, My story is uh, I had to go to a rehab. I got to go to a rehab. I could have never walked in off the streets and gone to Alcoholics Anonymous because I did not want to be an alcoholic. I'd gone to college. i had taken some sociology classes. And I had heard that if you admit to your innermost self that you're an alcoholic, it'll screw up your drinking. (laughs) And I didn't want anything to screw up my drinking because drinking has never been my problem. My problem is sobriety. Drinking is my solution, okay? Drinking is my solution. And I don't know about you, drinking never stopped working for me, okay? They didn't change the way they make bourbon as soon as I got sober. If I go down to the liquor store right now, if I go down to the liquor store and I buy a bottle of Jack Daniels and I crack open that bottle and I drink it, it's going to get me drunk. I'm going to get drunk. And you know how I know that? Because the state of California has certified that it's <laughs> going to work. Put a little seal on there it tells me that there's booze in there. And I love booze and booze works for me. Now, I don't have a problem drinking but everybody around me seems to have a problem
1: drinking. (laughs)
0: uh, For me, I'm a delusional drunk. I don't even know what's going on when I'm drinking. I don't know how bad I am when I'm drinking. I just think things are supposed to be that way, right? So I didn't lose anything because I never got anything. I just, it was like a slow progression. And uh, in the beginning, when I first started drinking, you know, I used it as a social lubricant. I had a little secret. I was gay. It's 1977. I'm on Long Island. There are all these boys. They're all hanging out with the girls. They're all looking at the girls. I'm looking at the boys. How do I hide that? How do I get away with that? So I take a little drink and drink, and I could drink through that and I could fit in and I found my people, I found the people who drank, people who smoked pot, the dirt bags. I found them all.
1: <laughs>
0: and uh, we did a lot of hallucinogens, we smoked a lot of pot and we drank and we drank. I drank all through high school, I drank all through college, you know, and I had to go to college. I needed to get out of Long Island. So the way I got out of Long Island was, I went to college and, uh, I heard of this school in upstate New York called Purchase, and it was an art school. I remember hearing two things
1: about the art school. There were a lot of gay guys at the art school and they smoked a lot of pot. So I
0: decided I'm going to that art school. The problem was I didn't do anything in art. So I (laughs) stole all my teacher's
1: paintings
0: and I took pictures of all my classmates' artwork. And I sent it in as a portfolio and I got into art school. <laughs> so I went, through, I went through art school, took me five years to graduate from a four-year program. I don't know if anybody can identify like that. I drank through all of that. Uh, I had a really great time. I remember my uncle saying to me when I was about to go to college, this was 1979, he said, you know, Neil, you're going off to college. I want you to remember to have a really good time. And I ran with that advice. I didn't go to a lot of of classes, but I had a really good time. When I graduated, I got out of college, I moved to Brooklyn, and I spent the next 20 years of my life in Brooklyn. So I say I'm from Brooklyn. You know, in the beginning, alcohol was working for me. Solved those problems. And it was a lot, a lot of fun. The funny thing is, is that even at the end, I thought it was fun. I was that delusional. I was absolutely that, you know, I needed to drink. I needed to drink on a daily basis. I needed to get drunk every single night, but I didn't know I needed to get drunk every night. I just thought I was thirsty. Let's go out for a drink. Let's go out for a drink. Let's go to my favorite bar, which is right across the street from my house. Let's go to my favorite bartender who always has a drink for me every time I'm I'm out of a drink, right? You never, never had to ask for another one, it was always there. So, I mean, I was such a delusional drunk that I didn't know I was dying of untreated alcoholism. I had no idea and I learned all that here. So in the beginning, like I said, it was fun. We had adventures, we had fun times, we went out. We were, it was New York in the eighties, New York in the eighties was dirty and seedy and hadn't been cleaned up yet. Great little parties all around in Tribeca, all around in Brooklyn, lots of sex, and then the AIDS crisis hit. And it got serious, it got very, very serious. Things started to change, I kept on drinking. Things started to change, I kept on drinking. And I would watch all my friends' careers take off, and I would watch them all do well. They were, they were getting hooked up, they were getting married, they were having boyfriends, they were getting apartments and jobs and promotions. And none of that was happening for me. But it didn't concern me because I was drinking. And I thought that I was the world's greatest performance artist. And I'm a starving artist. I'm a performing artist. No wonder. This is what you do when you're a You're a starving artist. This is what happens. So it never occurred to me that it was my drinking. And if it did occur to me it was my drinking, I never wanted to look at
1: it. I never wanted to look at it. Now, when you drink like I drink, you got to drink more to cover up the guilt and shame for drinking. So I was
0: drinking over my drinking, you know, drinking over my drinking. And uh, you have to do that. If you live the way I live, you have to do that. Towards the end of my drinking, well, let me just say this. At the beginning of my drinking, I could put in this much effort this much effort and I would get this much in return, right? Two, three, four, five drinks and boom, the world's my oyster. That's the beginning of my drinking career. By the end of my drinking career,
1: I would have to put this much effort in to get this much return. And it never occurred to me I had a drinking problem.
0: The end of my drinking, I had drank through a relationship, a nine and a half year relationship. He was gone. My apartment was a studio apartment. I shipped, actually, it was a two-bedroom apartment that I shared, and I, I built like a little studio in my apartment because I'm an artist. I had an easel, but I hadn't painted in seven years. I had dried out brushes in dried out cans with dried out paint on the easel. I had a masonite on the floor. I had Empty beer bottles on one side, filled with urine, and uh, full beer bottles on the other side. And you never wanted to get those two (laughs) mixed. You know, and I had lots of tables, lots of TV carts, those old TV carts that used to wheel. I, I used to collect them for some reason. I didn't have curtains. I remember, I, I found some zebra t- sheets at a thrift store and I cut them into curtains. And I thought, oh my God, this is so bright. Why would anybody buy curtains when you could just use sheets, right? I thought that was like really smart, like it's so stupid to buy curtains. And that was my house. And I had a little chair, I had a little black and white TV, I had a little phone and I had uh, an answering machine. In those days we had answering machines. And I remember people would call me up and I'd hear them leave message on my answering machine and be like, Neil, we're going out. Where are you? Where are you? And I'd be hiding under the covers in my bed on my little futon and I'd be saying, don't they know? Don't they know I'm at the opera? Don't they know I'm at the movies? Don't they know I'm doing something great with my life? I'm at the gallery. And I'd be like hiding underneath my bed, my covers in my bed. I was so delusional. uh,
1: My drinking at the end of my drinking career, I would start around six o'clock at night and I would walk up the Park Slope Hill to the Park Slope
0: Brewery and I'd get a pilsner and order my dinner. And I'd sit at the bar waiting for the, my takeout meatloaf
1: dinner to come And i grab the Pilsner, handshaking, and drink the first one down.
0: And then I'd have another one, and I'd get my meal, and I'd walk down the hill of Park Slope. I'd go back to my apartment, I'd eat my dinner, I'd watch the news, and
1: I'd fall asleep. And at midnight, I would wake up and I would put every strand of African beads I
0: owned on and I'd walk across the street and I'd go to the gay bar. And I'd be like, hello boys, I'm here. And I'd sit in the front of the bar in my seat, and I'd watch the world go by and party, party until about 7 a.m. In New York, the bars are open until four o'clock in the morning. And uh, you get to stay at the bar after hours if you sell coke so i decided to sell coke (laughs) (laughs) and i got to stay at the bar uh, after that and i'd come home at seven o'clock in the morning there was a middle school right by my apartment in park slope and uh all the kids would be going to middle school it'd be 7 a.m they'd be going to middle school so they'd be going to the bodega and they'd be getting their buttered rolls or their buttered bagels or their juicy juice, whatever they were. And I'd go into the bodega and uh, I would get a six pack of tall boys, Newport 100s. And the, the guy at the bodega, he was great. He always had my stuff waiting for me. I thought he was really great. What he was really trying to do was get me out of there because I stunk. <laughs> I thought, oh my God, this guy knows
1: me, right? He's trying to get away from those kids, you know? <laughs> and uh,
0: I'd go back up to my apartment. I'd drink that beer. I'd smoke my last joint. I'd do my last line. I'd turn on the porno. I'd call up the sex line. And then I'd pass out at 1 a.m., <laughs> 1 p.m. And I would do that over and over and over again. Not for one month. Not for two months, but for like three months. And I never thought I had a problem. My friends would look for me and I would hide. My parents would call me and I would hide. Just, it was just a cycle. Don't you know I'm an artist? Don't you know I'm living the life in New York?
1: Don't you know I'm at the opera? Total delusional alcohol. Towards the end of my drinking, uh, my friend Ahmed, he had a restaurant
0: on the Upper East Side, and he, at this time, I was unemployable, absolutely unemployable, unable to hold down a job at all, and to survive, I was getting all these credit card things in the mail, so I would get a credit card in the mail, I would like. Max out that credit card, transfer the balance to the new credit card, max out, ah, max out that credit card, transfer the new, and that's how I played the game. It was like this little shell game. So when I finally got sober, I was like $25,000 in debt, and that was 1999. So that was a lot of money back then, a lot of money now, but a lot of money back then. Anyway, so that's what I lived on. And... uh, I remember my friend Ahmed carved out a little job at his restaurant for me, gave me one more chance. And I was supposed to be there that day and I couldn't get out of bed that morning. And I remember sitting up in the futon saying to myself, oh my God, Neil, you really are an alcoholic. And then I remember crashing back down into the futon and going back to bed and starting that whole cycle over again. And it wasn't long after that, that my family did an intervention on me. I like to say that on November 28th, 1999, I went out for a slice of pizza underneath the Brooklyn Bridge, and I woke up in Laguna Beach, California at a rehab. (laughs) And what happened for me was, I went into the bar that night and I got, I was uh, actually, I didn't go to the bar. What happened to me was my brother had called uh, called us up and said, hey, you wanna go out for pizza? So I said, sure, let's all go out for pizza. So I met my brother for pizza at this place called Grimaldi's underneath the Brooklyn Bridge. They had this great cold oven pizza, really delicious. It was a rainy kind of drizzly day. And I remember there was this tall guy with a really big smile there and a bottle of wine and a tan. And it was in November, it was late November. He had a long coat on, like like Tim's coat. And I didn't know who he was. I didn't know what he was doing there, but I was there for the pizza and I was there for my brother. My brother had money, so I always went wherever my brother who had money said to go. Always a good idea. And uh, we went, we ordered the pizza. We took the pizza back to a house in Brooklyn. I didn't notice the house. The house was a friend of mine's house. I was so deluded out of it, I didn't even know it was his house. (laughs) And all of a sudden I saw my friend's wife, Pumpkin, she's out on the street. Hi, Neil, how you doing? Pumpkin, she's there. What the hell's Pumpkin doing there? Why is this guy still here? What's (laughs) going on? I
1: don't know what's going
0: on. I walk in the door, I open the door. It's an intervention. There's 13 people just in a little half circle and they're like, you're going to (laughs) rehab. And out of my mouth, miraculously, I said, yes, I'll go. It's the first time I said yes to a <laughs> anything, really. And then I re- so if you've never had an intervention, this is how an intervention goes, okay? So every, the intervention guy gets there, I guess, a day before and gives you all a little, like, practice intervention. And they all have to write a letter to you. And it's like, you know, your friends are there. So it would be Matt would be there. You know, you'd be there. You'd be there. Tim would be there. Nobody would pay attention to you know? <laughs> But the intervention is like, they all write these letters and it's standard. It's like the first paragraph is, Neil, we love you. The second paragraph is, Neil, we love you, but when you told that Nazi joke at the Jewish wedding, we knew there was a problem. (laughs) And then the third paragraph is, Neil, we love you. If you don't go to rehab, you're dead to me. (laughs) So that's how it worked. So I remember my my best friend was there. He read me the letter, there were tears in his eyes. I got up and I hugged him. And uh, for the rest of the intervention, I was like, do I have to hug everyone? Do I have to get, I hugged him, do I have to get up and hug him? So I was like, so self-absorbed. Anyway, I couldn't go on the intervention that night. I was adamant that I would not go that night. I would leave the next morning. And that guy, the tall guy with the wine and the smile and the, and the tan and the black coat, he was the interventionist guy. His name was Mike, I later called him Shanghai Mike. And uh, he was from this little rehab down in, uh, in Laguna. He pulled me aside, he said, Neil, why don't you wanna go tonight? I said, I can't go tonight, Mike, no matter what, I can't go tonight. He said, well, why? Tell me the real reason why you won't go tonight. I said, well, I owe Junior $300, my Coke dealer, and I gotta pay Junior back. And if I don't pay Junior back, you know, he's gonna come. Meanwhile, Junior was like 300 pounds. He was totally round. He was infatuated with me, would have never done anything, but I had to sell my cocaine. (laughs) I go back to the bar that night. It's a little after 12. I said to my bartender, Cheryl, Cheryl, I'm so sorry. I'm late. She says, what happened? I go, I'm so sorry. My family just did an intervention on me. <laughs> and Cheryl, my, my bartender, looks at me and says, well, it's about time. <laughs> I was so pissed at her. I was like, you bitch. I've been putting $20 down on the bar for the last six years, you know? <laughs> so, Anyway, the next morning I got up and I uh, got real drunk before the plane, got drunk on the, on the flight, did my last bag of cocaine somewhere over Colorado. <laughs> they, poured of, uh, they poured me out of the plane and I got into this, to this Mercedes SUV and headed off to rehab. And I wasn't afraid of rehab. Rehab didn't scare me, but it was the car ride the car ride to the rehab that scared me. I thought to myself, it's probably a 45 minute ride from the airport, because I thought to myself, every airport ride to wherever you're going is 45 minutes. That's it, it's always 45 minutes. It's 45 minutes in Brooklyn to JFK, it's 45 minutes here, wherever it is, it's 45 minutes. Now I'm doing 45 minutes in this car with a guy who's sober. What do
1: you say to a sober guy?
0: What do you say? I didn't talk to anybody who was sober in the longest time. I was like, what, what are we gonna talk about? This going to be so awkward, it's gonna be so embarrassing. What am I gonna talk to this so- <laughs> sober person? It never occurred to me, just sit in the back of the car and shut up, right? So I get in the car, we into driving to Laguna and it took about 40 minutes and we hit, we hit the Canyon Road. We're going down the Canyon Road I'm looking and I'm looking and it's dark and it's dark. All of a sudden I start seeing all these white icicle lights. Icicle lights in the trees, icicle lights by the Canyon club. Now we're getting closer to town. Icicle lights, icicle lights, icicle lights. Everything is looking. So the only thing I say to the driver is, what is this? Disneyland out here, 365 days of the year. And the guy turns around and he says to me, no, Mr. Caplet." It's Christmas. <laughs> I was so
1: delusional. I didn't even realize they were Christmas lights. I thought I was in Disneyland. I get into
0: my rehab and I had to do my intake. And the lady that gave my, did my intake with me, she became a very good friend of mine. She became my Eskimo into Alcoholics Anonymous. Her name was Cindy Martindale. She's passed away, but she did my, uh, she did my intake. And there was a question on the intake, what are you the most afraid of? What are you afraid of? And I said, honestly, on the intake, I don't know how to live my life without a cocktail in my hand. I don't know what to do with my hands. What do you do with your hands if there's no drink? I don't know how to talk to you. I don't know how to apply for a job. I don't know how to be a son. I don't know how to be a friend. I don't know how to live without drinking. And Cindy related
1: to that. She took me under her wing and she introduced me to all of you. And, uh, you know, I was one of those people. One of my character defects is, is that I have to be in with the in crowd, I
0: have to be cool. I have to be the center of attention. I have to know everyone. Everyone has to know me. I have to stay after the bar closes. I cannot leave when the lights come on. I have to be at the after hours party. I will do whatever it takes to be in with the in crowd. And that self-centeredness, that self-seeking, that character defect in Alcoholics Anonymous turned to gold, turned to gold. Cindy recognized that. And she tricked me. She brought me down to the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous and she introduced me to old timers and new timers and all of you. She made you guys seem like you were the coolest people in Alcoholics Anonymous. It'd be like if you met Tim (laughs) and you thought Tim was the coolest person in Alcoholics Anonymous. Or Matt or Genevieve, right? She introduced me to all these people, making, them fe- making me feel like they were the cool people to hang out with. And because I had that character defect, I stuck with them like white on rice. And I went to meeting after meeting after meeting. When I had about 30 days of sobriety, my gig at the rehab was up and I wanted to leave and go back to Brooklyn. And I argued, I said, well, 30 days are up, I'm going back to Brooklyn, right? It was uh, December 28th, December 30th, some around this time. And everybody in the rehab, the owner of the rehab, the program director who I had never met, and uh, my counselor, they all ganged up on me and said, You got to stay. You got to stay. I said, No, I got to go. You got to stay. Finally, they said, Neil, if everybody in the room is telling you that the Corvette is blue, and you're the only person that's telling me that the Corvette is red, maybe the Corvette is blue. For some reason, that stuck with me and I stayed. And uh, I'm so glad I did. Had I gone back to Brooklyn on that day, I would have been drunk and dead, probably not be here tonight. So I stayed. All in all, I stayed a total of 14 months at that rehab. I stayed in Laguna Beach and I never went back to Brooklyn. And my life flourished. And I just jumped in with both feet into alcohol. It's anonymous. But uh, I didn't stay sober. In August of 2000, I went back to Brooklyn to visit everybody and show off my newfound sobriety. Look how good I look. Look at how good I I clean up so well. Look at how hot I am. I'm finally going to sleep with that bartender I never slept with. Because if you're a drunk like me, you never sleep with your bartender. If something goes wrong, that's bad for the booze, right? So... I go back to Brooklyn. There's the bartender I want to sleep with. He gets drunk. We go back to his apartment. He passes out on the couch. I go to sleep in his room. I'm pissed off, no sex. I wake up the next morning. I rifle through his tips. He has all his tips on his bureau. I rifle through all the dollar tips that he has. I find the ones that he used for a straw that he rolled up into a straw because I used to sell coke to this guy. So I know what he's doing. I find those dollar bills. Unroll them. I lick the residue <laughs> up. Find enough. Blood, I find the empty thing. I suck the dry out of that. I steal forty dollars <laughs> and a Brooklyn T-shirt, and I'm out the door. <laughs> so now my mouth and tongue are all numb, and I call up my sponsor, my first sponsor, Daddy Quickly. I call him up. I say, "Don't tell me I'm a newcomer. I just licked a dollar bill that had cocaine residue, and my mouth's all numb. Don't tell me I'm a newcomer." My sponsor, he says, oh, don't worry about it, Neil. He says, everybody does that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you just
0: don't drink.
1: Don't drink. And uh, we'll talk about it when you get home.
0: Anyway, pick me up at Loton Beach Airport, and uh, I get in his Jeep, and he's got Sarah the dog there. And uh, I walk into his Jeep, the first thing out of his mouth is, hello,
1: newcomer. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So he was very smart, that was very, very smart because he knew that had he told me that I had blown my seven months of sobriety, I might've never came back. I might've gone on a real tear, a real big tear and never made it back. You know, when I realized then that what I had was, was my first resentment, my first resentment. I was resentful because the guy I wanted to sleep with didn't wanna sleep with me. That was my first resentment. And I didn't have that language then, but I have that language now. And when the book talks about resentment as the number one offender, right? I have firsthand experience with that. Why would I let a resentment into my life today? If I'm protecting my sobriety, if I value my sobriety, why would I let a resentment into my life today? If you take care of yourself and you go to the gym and you don't smoke and you eat right or you're a vegan and you do all these things for your body, you wouldn't let any poison like cigarettes into your body. Why would I let a spiritual poison like a resentment into my spiritual life? So when they talk about resentment being the number one offender, I totally understand that. I totally understand that. And I also understand powerlessness because that was not the first time That I had relapsed in sobriety. Well, it was the first time I relapsed, but it wouldn't be the only time I relapsed. In November of 2001, I found myself at the theater. And uh, by theater, I mean, uh, I'm not talking about Broadway, I'm talking about a place that does not require pants. So I'm at this theater and uh, a guy hands me some poppers. And uh, poppers are an inhalant. In the old days, they actually used to pop. But in, in today, they, they're just little inhalants. And a guy passes me uh, a, a bottle of poppers and they're to enhance your sexual experience. So I'm doing this bottle of poppers and uh, I leave and I go back and I tell my sponsor, And I say, are poppers a relapse? And he says, well, you know, Neil, some people can do poppers in sobriety and some people can't. And I heard you can do poppers in sobriety. (laughs) So a year later, I went back to that same theater, again, without any pants, and I did poppers again. So uh, in November of 2001, and then again in November of 2002, I re-identified as a newcomer because I did poppers. Well, I got the popper thing out of my system and I I started to knuckle down on this thing we call sobriety and I started to go to meetings, more meetings, more meetings and work with my sponsor and work with sponsees and work with all of you and read the book. And I was saying my prayers and I was making my bed and I was... uh, going to meetings and getting commitments and working with guys. And I was Mr. AA and I looked really good in AA. And then I had to get some dental surgery. So I hate the dentist. I never liked the dentist as a kid. I had braces. I had braces all the way until I was 19 years old. I could eat a bagel, the brace would break. It was painful. It was horrible. They were the old metal ones back in those days. So I hated the dentist, never liked the dentist, never liked it at all but I had to do this dental surgery. So I'm terrified of the dentist. So I said to the dentist, can you give me something for this dental surgery? So he gave me some value, three values. The first one I was supposed to take the night before to calm me down. So I took it the night before to calm me down because it's happening tomorrow. The second one I was supposed to take an hour before the procedure to calm me down and get me in that chair because I don't want to go in the chair. So I took that one to get in the chair. And then the last value, the five milligram value, I was supposed to take after the procedure to calm me down, to get me through, so I could go and deal with my life. I took them all as prescribed, but that last one, even though I took it as prescribed, I didn't take it for what it was prescribed for. It was prescribed to calm me down after the, accident, after the procedure. I used it to go on the phone sex line and masturbate. (laughs) So so we have a little problem there. Now we're into motive. And uh, I went to my sponsor and I told my sponsor what happened. And I said, I am not a newcomer. Again. He said, well, I don't know if you're a newcomer or not. It's up to you and your higher power. So that was November 8th of 2006. And from November 8th in 2006 to November 15th in 2006, I would go to my sponsor almost every night
1: with an excuse why I shouldn't re-identify and he would shoot that excuse down. On November
0: 15th, I went to the Wednesday night Gucci meeting, the Wednesday night speakers meeting in Laguna Beach that had been my go-to meeting. I'd gone to it every, Wednesday of my sobriety for seven years. And uh, I was wearing a suit. I put my, I was supposed to take my four-year birthday cake, my four-year birthday cake. I put my name on the little list to take your birthday. I was sitting with my sponsor in our usual seats. They call for newcomers and I stand up. And I stand up. And I say, I'm a newcomer. And I don't know what the hell happened, but I just stood up and instead of taking my four-year cake, I became a newcomer again. And I was pissed, I was pissed. You know, when I had to go back to meetings and I had to tell my sponsees and I I had to start all over on the steps again and I was doing everything before what what was going on
1: and, I remember at three weeks of my sobriety, I was so mad, I hated all of
0: you. I would sit in the meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous and somebody would get up and share, oh, my name is Betsy. I have three months of sobriety. I have the husband back, the kids back, the car back, the family back. And I'd sit in my chair and go, I hope your face explodes. (laughs) I hope you drink, bitch. (laughs) And that was at three weeks of my new sobriety. And then uh, my friend, my friend Eric T, he got drunk. He got drunk on, on vodka. And he lived two doors down from me in my in my prison cell. And because uh, in those days it was a prison cell. And uh, we went over and helped Eric T. And we sat with Eric T and tried to get Eric T sober. And had I not helped Eric T. I probably wouldn't be here because helping Eric T got me to my next meeting because at three weeks, I was ready to go out. Three weeks, I was ready to go out. And Eric T got drunk and I went over to help Eric T. And that's why I'm here. So when they talk about working with another alcoholic, I have experience in that. One alcoholic talking to another, helping him, relating to them. That kept me sober that night and that's why I'm here. About a year later, I went to my sponsor. And I said, Kip, Kip's my sponsor. So I said, Kip, where was my higher power? Where was my higher power when I had that value? I remember taking that value clear as day. I remember reaching over, picking up that value, putting it on my mouth going, I wonder what will happen if I do this. I had absolutely no power, powerless. My best thinking was, what's going to happen if I do this? And I said to my sponsor, where was my higher power? I was doing all these things. I'm supposed to have a relationship with a power greater than myself that will protect me. And my sponsor said to me, Neil, I don't know where your higher power was when you took that value, but I can tell you where he was an hour after that. He was there to get me back into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I went
1: out for one hour and an hour later, I was in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, and that's my story. Look, I'm always looking over here for something that's over there.
0: Wherever I shine the light, the thing's not there. The thing is always
1: here. I think I need a higher power that's gonna prevent me from taking the pill but I have a higher power that gets me back after I take the pill.
0: You know, what I've learned over the years is I have a power greater than myself. I have a higher power in my life that loves me so much that got me to Alcoholics Anonymous four times, four times. If I have have a higher power that loves me so much to get me into Alcoholics Anonymous four times, to get me through drinking, Through all those things that I did when I was drinking, through all this
1: guilt, through all this shame, I have a higher power that loves me enough to get me here, to get me back to you.
0: This is fantastic. Do you think I'm gonna have a higher power that hates me because I miss a few meetings? Because I don't pay a few bills? Because I break up with a girlfriend? Because I fall in love with someone that screws, because I take the treasury? All these things that we do in Alcoholics Anonymous, all these things that I did in Alcoholics Anonymous,
1: if I have a higher power that got me to Alcoholics Anonymous in the first place, a loving, forgiving, accepting higher power,
0: don't you think that higher power is going to be okay with you? when you screw up in Alcoholics Anonymous? Because that's my story, people. I screwed up in Alcoholics Anonymous. I screwed up when I was new, and I screwed up when I had time. And I'll end with this. When I had eight years of sobriety, I was working in a store. I was working at Bloomingdale's, and I was selling women's shoes. I was making a lot of money, and I was a good women's shoe salesperson, and it was going really, really well. And I was continuing to pray and I was continuing to uh, work with other people and I was continuing to do all these things like a checklist. Check, 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 bed, prayer, meditation, calls, plug, check, 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 check. (laughs) But in sobriety, I could do all this checklist stuff and still remain totally delusional. And I was totally delusional at this job in Bloomingdale. And I remember this lady came in, it was around Christmas. She wanted to buy a pair of Uggs. I did not want to sell her a pair of Uggs, but I'm a woman's shoe salesperson. Let the lady buy the frickin' Uggs. I wanted to tell her a joke. So I told this lady a joke. I asked her, I said, hey lady, can I tell you a dirty joke? And she said, yeah. Of course, she was trapped on the escalator. We were going down. I was blind to her emotions. I couldn't see on her face that she was flipping out. She was like from Newport Beach. She had this Jewish guy fucking chasing her, asking her to tell jokes. So I told her this great joke, which I won't tell you now. You'll see me afterwards. She laughed, I laughed. Her laugh was a little bit weird. I noticed that. I went back up to the. About 10 minutes later, this crazy man comes up to the second floor shoe department in Bloomingdale's and goes, where's that guy, Neil? Now, I'm the only guy at the shoe department that has a sign that says, Neil, shoe salesman. And I'm like, Neil who? (laughs) You got the wrong Neil. There's some guy that just told my wife a dirty joke. Who's that guy? And I'm like, it's not me. You said, it says Neil on you. And he chased me around. (laughs) Anyway, I got fired from that job, but I got fired on a Monday and that was a Friday. So I had a weekend to think about what was going to happen to
1: me. And I was in Arizona. I was visiting my parents in Arizona and the pain, the shame, the shame and the guilt. It was like when I first got sober
0: that I was totally sober and that I had trapped some unsuspected woman on a, on a, I mean, it was a good joke, but I mean, just a, that I could be so blind to how other people are feeling, that I could be so in my sobriety, so neo-centered, so selfish, so out of it, so out of touch with reality, I was crushed
1: by that same shame and guilt. And I remember, I was at this meeting at the uh,
0: uh, North Scottsdale Alano Club and there was a speaker there and I was sitting in the front and the speaker was speaking and I was crying and trembling in the front. I must have looked like a newcomer. And afterwards, I went to the speaker and I said, can I talk to you? And he probably thought I was going to ask him to be a sponsor, to be my sponsor. But I said to him, look, this is what I did. And I feel terrible. I know I'm going to get fired but I can't deal with this guilt for this whole weekend. I am dying inside. I am dying of alcoholism.
1: And he asked me a very simple question. He said, did you ask your higher power to forgive you? And I had not. I had not.
0: I had spent the entire Friday, Saturday, Saturday night beating the crap out of myself and I had forgotten to ask my higher power to forgive me. So that night I went home, I asked my higher power to forgive me, and that Monday I got fired.
1: The point of this story is,
0: is that I have a higher power, as do you, that got me into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous when I was a mess. And through you, loved me enough to get better, to heal to heal and become the person I am today. Do you think my higher power is not for, going to forgive me for telling a joke to a lady on an escalator? <laughs> a bad, dirty joke. You know, make, I made my mistakes in Alcoholics Anonymous and I'll continue to make them. And as long as I stay in Alcoholics Anonymous, that's okay. That's okay. I've already won. You've already won. If you're here, you've won because there are people who can't get through that door. I'll hit my head on the bed at 12.01. I'll do one thing 100% perfect today. I won't take a drink. I won't take a drink. Everything else, I get a second chance. Everything else, I get a second chance. I'm a human being. All I am is a human being. I have a higher power that loves me today and you people have loved me today so that I could love you back. So thank you very much for my...